Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. We are the Ambassadors at Large. My name is Joe Genie, based in Washington, D.C. Great to have you with us. This is a podcast about international affairs. Today, we're going to talk about corporate supply chains and labor practices throughout the world. And of all the topics that we talk about on this podcast, I feel that this one, this is probably the one that affects the most humans directly in terms of how many people are are, uh, involved in various aspects of of the supply chain, whether they're making stuff, selling stuff, buying stuff. Uh, it affects pretty much all of us. And uh, fortunately, uh, I'm not an expert, but fortunately, uh, joining us today on the podcast, I am delighted to introduce Sarah Labowitz, uh, who is the uh, co-director at the Stern Center for Business and Human Rights at New York University. Sarah, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So th- what uh, what started me off thinking about this was actually, so uh, we went to Grinnell College together and uh, I just went back to the reunion. Did you make it to the reunion? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was walking around the campus. The campus is way improved. Why didn't we have those facilities when we were there? Um, New pool. I don't know. <laughs> the pool is great. Um, uh, but yeah, so I, I wandered into the old Grinnell College bookshop and I bought the perfect hoodie, which I'm actually holding in my hands right now. It's, it's the, it just fit, it fits me perfectly. It's the, the perfect combination of cotton and polyester. Um, and, and I just love it. Um, and this hoodie cost me 50 bucks, except it only cost me 40 bucks because of the alumni discount. And I was thinking as I was buying it, I would like to, to think that everybody who was involved in making this hoodie from the very beginning of the supply chain right up to the, you know, the people who are selling it, obviously, but the people who milled the cotton, the people who did whatever you do with polyester to turn it into hoodie form, the people who assembled it. Uh, the people who, who shipped it over here, everybody is being paid a decent wage uh, that there's no slave labor, there's no child labor, that conditions are, are, are okay, and, and that everybody is able to put a roof over their heads and feed their family. And it wouldn't cost a lot of money to do this. If I, if I was to give up my, my st- alumni discount, that would be more than enough because a lot of people down the supply chain are making pennies per garment. So, so that $10, which I would happily spend if I could be assured of this, would be enough. But I can't actually do that uh, because of the way the, the, the industry works these days. I can't actually, even if I wanted to, I can't put my, my money where my morals are and ensure that my hoodie is properly made uh, you know, by, it, with fair labor practices and the like. Why can't I? What's gone wrong? Well, um, there's so much in what you just said. And the the place to start, I think, is this notion. I mean, what's amazing to me is that 14% of global employment is in manufacturing. And with the expansion of the global economy, jobs in these supply chains are incredibly important, particularly in poor places where... Um, Investment from global companies has been transformative. You know, I've done all this work on Bangladesh and um, the garment sector there. It's the second biggest garment sector in the world. It's incredibly important to Bangladesh's growth. And you now have 5 million people employed in the, in the export garment sector. It's 80% of the country's export, or export economy, 18% of GDP. So it's, it's this huge driver of global growth. Um, but it raises these questions about why, you know, is your sweatshirt, your Grinnell College sweatshirt, produced ethically? And um, 
so the reason that it's so hard, what, what you're describing is, you know, can I just pay $10 more? Um, you're essentially saying, can I do a wealth transfer? I've got you know, I'm, I'm foregoing my alumni discount. I want to give the $10 to the workers at the end of the supply chain. And it's really difficult to do that because of this diffuse network of firms that, that comprise supply chains today. And the research that, that I've done focuses on the, the practice of subcontracting and the, the lack of control, the lack of visibility in the supply chain which is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to do that wealth transfer and to figure out, you know, who, who, if you could, would you give that money to? Um, and then there's also that we should also talk about the, the movement on campuses, the anti-sweatshop movement on campus and the important role that that's played in, in the anti-sweatshop movement broadly. So, so that's, uh, and that's, that's a really interesting point because I remember in the late 1990s and early 2000s, this was a, this was a really big deal and there was all this movement towards corporate social responsibility and major there were major protests and and uh, you know Kathy Lee Gifford was hauled before congress and made fun of on south park and and a lot of companies you know major retailers were signing uh, agreements about how this stuff would be made but it's like the world moved from underneath us while we were making that happen the environment shifted really quickly so even if the company that makes this this hoodie, Camp David, I hadn't previously heard of it. Uh, even if they want it to be made in this proper way, their their factories are inspected. Those factories are now subcontracting out to pl- to other places, and they're just going to these dark corners where there's no oversight. And so the whole the whole environment has changed, and it's much more difficult now to to enforce these labor laws to the extent that they exist than it was. I feel 15 years ago. I think it was probably difficult 15 years ago too. But um, but I used to work at an organization called the Fair Labor Association, which comes out of the uh, late 90s anti-sweatshop movement that you're describing. And um, that was really the first the first job that I had out of out of Grinnell. Um, but the history there is that, as you're saying, Kathy Lee Gifford. Um, there was a uh, Robert Reich, who was the Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton, had a no sweat campaign that revealed sweatshops in Los Angeles. You had revelations about child labor in Nike's um, uh, footwear factories. So all of that, all of that, caused the Clinton White House to convene what they called the Apparel Industry Partnership, and it was um, it, it then became the Fair Labor Association in 1999. And it sets standards, it creates a code of conduct, a uniform code of conduct for um, companies, particularly those companies that want to sell in the collegiate market. Um, So many of your big name athletic brands, so Nike, Adidas, Puma, Reebok, Under Armour, are all members of the Fair Labor Association. Um, And then all the little companies that you've never heard of that sell the golf balls and coffee mugs and everything else that are for sale in, in college bookstores are members of the FLA. Um, there's also another organization called the Worker Rights Consortium, which doesn't include companies, but but includes the universities and the, the NGOs that are interested in, in advancing worker rights in the supply chain, particularly for colleges. And in some ways, So both of those organizations are really interesting, the FLA in particular, because it brings together all these companies that are facing common challenges. It it has them do reporting and transparency about what's going on in their supply chains. Um, It helps them take action collectively so that they're not just addressing the problems on their own. And 
and all of that has been good, but as you're describing, it's not, it's not nearly enough. And the research that I've done on Bangladesh in the last, last two years is really, as I said, about subcontracting and about this loose control. Essentially what, what everybody said in the late nineties, there was a consensus that yes, if we're going to do globalization, it should benefit everybody, not just those of us in the U S that want to buy cheap sweatshirts or t-shirts or socks or whatever, but workers in Bangladesh or China or Honduras who are making the clothes and go ahead. So, so let's, uh, Bangladesh is actually a great example here because it's it, it sort of many of the the things that have have changed and, and and some of the challenges that are faced in what what you're trying to do are, are pretty it, it's pretty emblematic of those. So one th- one thing about Bangladesh is that is that you've got a, a workforce of seventy five million and and as you said millions of them are are in the. Uh, the garment industry, and you have 125 labor inspectors in the whole country. The, for one thing, you you just have way more people in, employed than you can possibly inspect. So, what do you? Uh, the, I guess my first question is sort of, what is the answer? Is it is it is it private? Is, is corporate social responsibility going to be enough, or or do you need a government bureaucracy that regulates like we have here in the United States? I mean, the, the you know, especially post FLA, the, there aren't. Uh, very many sweatshops in the United States because there are federal regulators who are clamping down on that sort of thing. But Bangladesh doesn't really have that. So what do you do? Yeah. So that's sort of the central question of globalization, right? And what's the role of companies when you know, everybody everywhere has a right to a safe and safe workplace, dignity at work. There are international universal standards and conventions that that protect rights at work. Governments are supposed to fulfill those rights and to ensure the rights of their own people. In a place like Bangladesh, the government either can't or won't enforce rights to fulfill its duty, but it's a hugely important sourcing destination for global companies. So what's what's the responsibility of companies? As you say, is CSR enough? I think one of the lessons after the factory collapse at Rana Plaza two years ago, where 1,200 people, workers, were killed in a single morning, was that CSR is just not enough. It's If um, you're relying solely on companies to police their own supply chains... Um, you know, I just wrote a, I wrote a blog post that says, uh, about this phenomenon that says if... Um, if you as a company think you're going to be responsible for everything that you see, then you see very little. And that's what's really gone on in the CSR movement is that companies accept responsibility for their first-tier suppliers, but a lot of production happens in secondary and tertiary suppliers. And so so many, of wor- so many workers, we think 3 million garment workers in Bangladesh, are excluded from the brand, the foreign fashion brands, from their plans to make uh, factories safer. So who's responsible for those workers? And that's where I think you need a mixed public and private solution, what we're calling shared responsibility. So let's talk about what shared responsibility entails, because there are some countries that are really good at paying their public prosecutors and and their inspectors so that they won't be subject to corruption. They won't, uh, you know, they'll actually do their jobs. There's enough of them that they can actually flood the market and that they can sort of work with all 
stakeholders to make sure that these things uh, get done properly. And that's the sort of the art and science of government regulation. But there are a lot of other countries that either, like you say, can't or won't. They either don't have the money to pay their inspectors enough for them to actually do their jobs, or they're just not really interested. Uh, what so what what does shared responsibility entail? Like what's what's how how's it? Give me an example of how it works, perhaps. Yeah, well, and I should say that the places where uh, low end commodity manufacturing takes place tend to, tend to be those places with very low wages and very weak protections for workers. So. When we think about shared responsibility, we're thinking about it in terms of not only the government of Bangladesh or uh, China or Honduras or wherever, but um, also the the countries that are big consuming countries. So what is the responsibility of the government of the United States, the EU governments, um, and then also the big financial institutions, the the IFC, the World Bank, um, as well as the the big global fashion brands and their primary suppliers. One of the the most interesting parts of the research that I was doing in Bangladesh was, you know, as I was doing the research, I was invited to commute uh, via helicopter to uh, with a factory owner to his big factory complex a little bit outside of the capital because the traffic is terrible in Dhaka, and so he commutes by private helicopter. So there, there are... <laughs> Um, there are people who have been very successful in business in in the garment industry or other aspects of manufacturing that that can and should contribute resources in a shared responsibility model. But uh, when we when we talk about shared responsibility, we're talking about basically four components. First, that you take an industry approach that this is bigger than any one company. Um, or one supplier, that you've got to look at the whole system, particularly when there's loose control. You know, if there's all this subcontracting that's going on, it's very difficult to ascertain, you know, where a particular garment is is coming from. So you need a an industry-wide approach that's looking at a particular manufacturing process or a particular place or both. Secondly, that you that you seek end-to-end visibility and that you really see, seek to see the whole problem not just what companies define as the supply chain, their first-year suppliers, but all the, the secondary, the tertiary, the cotton producers, the transporters, etc. Third, that you do true cost accounting. What's it really going to take to fix this problem? How do you, what's it going to take to bring the subcontractors out of the shadows, into the light, um, to fix factories, to to increase efficiency, whatever it is, how do you, what's the true cost? And then fourth, how do you share the burden proportionally? So that it's not only the foreign fashion brands that are responsible, but also their local primary suppliers, the governments, the financial institutions, and divide up the costs and the, the other responsibilities of fixing the problem. Um, you asked for an example, and, and the example that I like uh, these days is the efforts to combat blight in Detroit, which is not a manufacturing example, but it's it's kind of the consequences of the loss of manufacturing in Detroit and the widespread blight, the shrinking of the city's footprint. And what they did in that instance was they stood up a task force that was a mix of business and local civil society organizations. And they, they engaged the, citizen, the citizens of Detroit in identifying blight. They had something called Blexting, where you could text about blight. Um, and they put it all on a map. 
And then they assessed the cost. They said it's going to cost $800 million to address residential blight in Detroit. And then they attracted a mix of funding from the federal government, the local government, uh, philanthropic foundations, companies, all came in to support what the, the task force had identified as the true cost of addressing blight. And that's what they're starting to do right now. It's, it's an unfinished experiment, but it is an example of this model. Now, uh, what, uh, now th- this is nice when you have demand for products that are made in, in a decent way, which you have in, in most countries that I hate the term the West, but it just, it, you know, the U.S., Europe, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, um, and a couple of other countries. Consumers in those countries want this. But consumers in other countries at this point have not necessarily shown that they do. And and the, the share of the so-called West is, is falling. In the next 15 years, the share of the countries I just mentioned is going to fall globally from about 64% to something like 30%. And uh, you're going to have a lot of, of new sort of, sort of low middle class, people who are earning you know 2 to $15 a day, that, that area, who are going to be buying... Uh, cheap undifferentiated goods and it's not really clear in places like like china or south korea where you have a large consumer base and those countries are very different from each other economically south korea is a very wealthy country uh china's per capita income is is still fairly low relative to to industrialized countries but but in both cases you've not really seen a kind of demand for for uh corporate social responsibility and a concern for labor rights abroad. And those are the places where people are going to be buying more and more stuff. So like Bangladesh, for example, if they're shipping to the United States, this model might be effective. But what if they're shipping to India? Right. Well, I, I don't know if I'm as as rosy on the the interest of U.S. consumers even of paying more. I think it is true for a certain part of the the market here in the U.S. that people are willing to pay more, you know, they're forego their discount, pay the $10 more for the sweatshirt in the bookstore. But people really like cheap stuff. And so the, I, I think that this is where the government piece is really important and kind of zooming out to the broader purpose of globalization, which is that more people are better off, that they have more economic opportunity, that they have better rights protections. That's sort of the premise of globalization, is that it's good for everybody at both ends of the chain. And that's where you need governments um, and and the global financial, the international financial institutions that are willing to to invest in in these places to help them move up the value chain so that they they remain on a growth path, that they are stable partners, better allies. Um, this is where the, when I worked at the State Department, labor diplomacy is a lot about, you know, we want good jobs in, in countries that are aligned with U.S. interests and, and all that, and, and ensuring decent work in those places is should be part of the U.S.'s uh, global agenda. Uh, which brings me to the the recently passed, though by no means ratified, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which will encompass uh, twelve countries, uh, ranging dramatically from the United States and country rich countries in Northeast Asia like Japan and South Korea to a lot of Southeast Asian countries, in, including a handful uh, that have pretty 
severe problems with their 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 labor industries. Malaysia, Cambodia come to mind. Uh, China is not in this pact, so this won't affect at least not immediately my hoodie. In any case, uh, it's a little early. <laughs> it's a little early um, because we haven't really gotten to read what's in there yet, uh, and no one who wasn't intimately involved in negotiating it has really gotten to see it. But what would you want to see in the TPP? What's um, what would really make a difference if it's in there? And, and then, of course, the question is, will it be enforced? Yeah, that's the big question for me. When I, I worked in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor at the State Department, and um, I worked on some of the complaints under the free under under some of the U.S.'s free trade agreements brought by the AFL. And, um, you know, and in, in Bangladesh, I think that there were four complaints under a free trade agreement Um before the U.S. took up, uh, or under, this was under the another trade provision, sorry, the uh, GSP, um, the AFL lodged four complaints about Bangladesh, working conditions in Bangladesh, violence against uh, union organizers. And it basically took the biggest industrial accident in modern memory for the U.S. trade representative or the administration to take up this complaint. And so there is a frustration that as we liberalize trade and, and make trade freer, that workers are not getting the kinds of protections that they, that they should. So I think, um, without, you know, I haven't read all of TPP, but there is a real desire to see more protections for workers and, and, better enforcement under the under the trade agreements that we already have and then certainly those that we are agreeing now how do i so there, there, there's one case that i read about where there are there are new because th- these are relatively new and as trade agreements have gotten more complicated you've got these sort of labor provisions that weren't there in in you know the the 80s or the 90s but uh, i remember one from the 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 CAFTA, the central american free trade agreement uh, CAFTA and DR, I believe it was. Um, and, uh, uh, there was one instance where there was some company that was willfully violating the law in, in Guatemala. And so the U S sued them and that was 2007 and the case is still in court. Meanwhile, other countries have mushroomed and proliferated and taken over that, that, that market share. And it's sort of like, is it, it, am I, is it like the final level of Pac-Man where it's just completely impossible or like whack-a-mole where it's just completely impossible to whack all the moles? Is this whack-a-moles, whack-a-mole of, um, of poor working conditions? Yeah. Yeah. It's like you subcontractor, you subcontractor, and they're just proliferating all over the place. And if it takes years and years to, to, to litigate in some of these cases under the free trade agreement, how, how can we, how can we prevent this from, from just, you know, constantly playing catch up against an industry that's, that is this massive, and and this flexible. This is what Bill Clinton called the race to the bottom, where your com- companies are constantly changing or seeking lower wages, um, less regulation, et cetera. Um, and this is where I, I, I go back to. So what we're describing, we've talked about kind of two ends of a spectrum, where on the one hand, you've got CSR initiatives, which I, I think the evidences are increasingly insufficient. You know, it's good that companies do CSR at an individual level, but but they're missing things like the tragedy at Rana Plaza. And on the other hand, you've got um, these trade agreements that take forever that are highly legalistic. Um, and in some ways, what we're describing with shared responsibility is something in between, 
that leverages the private sector, but also acknowledges the important role that government has to play. The thing that I really like about the Detroit example is that you've got a small group of people in this task force, um, the head of Quicken Loans and then a, um, a, an education leader and a, and a housing leader from, from Detroit coming together in a task force, studying the problem, saying how much money they need, and, um, and then getting it. And what's interesting about that is that they essentially create their own mandate. And um, I think we need to see more of that where people who have a direct interest in the system for a variety of reasons, um, you know, the reason that uh, H&M or The Gap might care about better working conditions in Bangladesh are probably different than the reason that the U.S. government or, you know, the Australian government cares about good working conditions in Bangladesh. But um, trying to find a, a forum where they can where they can all advance their interests and actually solve the problem. Yeah. So, so this, uh, that, um, I I like this. I'm trying to imagine how it works in, in the future. So, uh, so again, taking it back to, to a, a Bangladeshi factory, for example, uh, the idea is basically to sort of get different stakeholders together, people who have money, people, governments who are interested, private citizens who are interested, companies who are interested, and basically sort of figure out what kind of, how much money is needed to create a regulatory regime, partially private, partially public, that will ensure proper labor standards to the extent possible, and then implement that and sort of getting everyone together in a room, as it were. Yeah, and and making it, one of the, one of the issues right now, and this is what the next round of research that will come out with shows, is that if you are a factory in Bangladesh that produces for a foreign brand directly, if you're a first-tier supplier, there are a lot more resources available to you. Um, the USAID and the IFC and the different brands have come together and created financing vehicles, but it's all dependent on whether you have a direct relationship with a foreign brand. And if you're not one of those factories, if you are a subcontracting factory or you're working through agents, then you don't have access to um, to the financing or the training or whatever it is. And so it's um, it's broadening out making those making those kinds of solutions available to a wider group a wider part of the supply chain so that you're encompassing many more workers it's kind of a, a maze right now and and I hear this from factory owners when I was there um, where they didn't know kind of what resources would be available and it was all kind of dependent on the nature of your particular sourcing relationships okay so so I have, I have one more question which is basically sort of from the consumer's end you know, as someone who's not actively involved in this, but is a, a, a someone who buys clothes, uh, what is what do you think of the the ideal? So the one of the ideas about free markets is that they they're dependent on perfect information. Like if I know everything about my product, then I will make informed decisions that will provide the best outcome for myself and society, et cetera. Invisible hand, blah blah blah. Um, Am I the sort of so for me as the consumer, is it better that I know everything, or that I know nothing? So, it, so to to compare a scenario in which you have kind of a Yelp for supply chains, where every time you know in in the near future, every time I pick up a, a garment in a shop, I can scan its barcode and I can see a, a sort of six point, you know, check 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 
it all, you know, every level of the supply chain it met. And I can see that. And that's been verified by this agency and that agency, kind of like the, you know, the, 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 fair trade tuna or, or sorry um the, the sort of like uh sustainably managed tuna that i i see in in, in a, a fancy grocery store or whole foods or something uh that's one hypothetical outcome the other one is basically that i that a regime is put in place that's so effective that i don't have to worry about it i can just go into a store buy something not have to worry about it and just trust that all of it is is being made in in a decent way. Which one of those do you think is sort of most likely, and and which one of those do you think is most beneficial, or does or does the consumer not really matter at all here? Are we not? Are we just liars, and we're we're like we want we want to care, but we're actually just going to buy the cheapest thing regardless? It's a great question, um, and I I think you know I wear clothes, um, I enjoy shopping. I think about this. Um, <laughs> I think about this a fair amount, and. Um, so let me just say, I think that consumer does matter. I think companies are responsive to their consumers' demands. And we have been in a cycle of incredibly fast fashion for the last several years, where consumers have proven to have a kind of insatiable appetite for more, 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 more cheap, cheap, cheap clothes. Um, someone was telling me we're now up to 12 seasons a year. Oh, it's, it's like it's like that that bit in Wally where they're they're all dressed in red, like you know, floating along in their hover chairs, and the guy says, "Have you tried blue? It's the new red." And they all just like <laughs> press a button and their clothes change to blue. Right, right. And so you know, we've there's this been this incredible you know, consumers are buying huge quantities of clothes. Um, so I I do think that as a consumer, I mean, just personally. You're asking your the, the clothing brands that you buy from for more transparency about where they're producing. Um, even when I'm in a small store, I'll ask, "Where is this made? Um, you know, what kind of relationships do you have with the factories?" My my own view is that companies that have closer and more direct relationships with their supply chain are better on working conditions. Um, there. Uh, but I will say it's very difficult to be a kind of ethical consumer because there's so little comparable information. It's very difficult to tell if um, H&M is better than Gap. And Yeah, and, um, and like, or like, like made in China, made in Vietnam, made in Bangladesh. That tells me something, but it doesn't really tell me what I really want to know, which, which is made decently by non-children, non-slaves, people in decent conditions, that sort of thing. Right. And, um, you know, when I go and talk to Bangladeshi workers, I say, you know, there's a lot of scrutiny about Bangladesh and the garment sector. Do you have a message for consumers in America? And the thing that they say 10 out of 10 times is keep placing orders because they want, you know, their livelihoods depend on it. So there is a temptation to say, oh, I won't buy from Bangladesh because it's got such a bad reputation. I, I try to buy stuff from Bangladesh because I, I have met with a lot of those workers, a lot of factory owners. I know how important the garment sector is for, for Bangladesh. Um, but yeah, the, the question you're asking is whether it's made in a good factory or bad factory. And that's where my, my inclination is toward the, the second scenario that you described, <clears throat> where you've got systems that are strong enough that ensure minimum standards for everybody, that you don't have a kind of two-speed two speed garment sector where, um, you've, you know, the Whole Foods crowd can buy 
stuff that's decent and everybody else is left to buy stuff made in sweatshops. So that's why I favor this kind of shared responsibility model that that engages the, the private sector, but also brings government into the picture. Because I do think these are these are systems level problems, they're industry level problems that um, that require both. I, I thought of one more small question when you said relationship with supply chains. What about places that are so? I, I need to buy a lot of my clothes custom because I'm really skinny and nothing fits me off the rack for like business wear. So um, uh, if I'm buying from like a custom shop, they're they're putting these orders directly in with their supply chain. They're not a major manufacturer. They're not producing the kind of volume that the Gap or J Crew is or whoever. Um, is that is that a good thing because they have a closer relationship or is it a bad thing because they're getting it from a small company where there's no oversight? Yeah, so it just highlights how complicated all of this is. And um, you know, one of the companies I like is H&M. You know, H&M is a huge buyer. Um, they're not a company that you necessarily think of as a kind of Whole Foods company. But, um, but they use their leverage in, in good ways. They have long, long-term relationships with their suppliers. Their suppliers tend to respond to them because they place such big orders. They're such valuable um, buyers. Um, and, you know, I'm sometimes on panels about ethical fashion and this sort of thing. And I, I do sometimes challenge the, some of the companies, you know, here we are in New York, and um, there's a lot of rhetoric around, you know, particularly small companies being really ethical. And my question is always, how do you know? Because if you're a really small company in, the, in a global supply chain and you're off to China or Bangladesh or whatever, and you're pl- placing very small orders, your stuff is the first out the back door to the subcontracting factory. Because unlike an H&M, you, you small fashion brand, don't have the security or the possibility of long-term contracts, high-value contracts. So um, there's, there's companies that increasingly are kind of asserting ethics, and I think it's important as a consumer to ask, how do you know where your stuff is really being produced or that the standards that you uh, assert are really being enforced? Um, some of the one of the research questions that I have on on my mind for next year is this concept of a high road firm, and uh, there's some great research out of MIT on this in a domestic context, looking at the airline industry or the grocery grocery store chains. Um, but what does that mean in a global context? What is a high road firm in the in the global supply chain, and what are the four or five factors that would indicate a, a really good firm? And can you do that in a way? Can you assess that in a way that that allows you to compare H and M versus Gap versus Uniqlo versus um, whoever? So that's that's an area for exploration, I think. I would I would love I mean the 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 Yelp for supply chain thing it was kind of you know tongue in cheek but I I would absolutely love that if I if I could have this information it really would inform my my choices I mean I can only speak for myself here but I just when I go in, into a store even if they're saying this or that I can never be really sure unless there's someone whose job it is to inspect it on the ground so I'm 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 I I'm excited to see what you guys come up with and I'm excited to see what the uh, what the work is going forward uh, on this, uh, Sarah Lebowitz. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, is there any, is there any place? This is at the end of the podcast. We always do plugs. So, is there any place where you can uh, where people can 
find you or find out more about this or or, or get involved in, in any way? Uh, is there any sort of places on the internet where people can find out more about this? Well, if I can be self-promotional, I will say I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter uh, at Sarah Labo and uh, our website, which is bhr.stern.nyu.edu. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You can find the podcast online at uh, joegenie.com slash podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, look up ambassadors at large and, uh, and subscribe. If you like the podcast, leave us a five-star review. It helps. Uh, it spreads the word. And uh, we will be back next time uh, with a completely different topic. Uh, more on that later. Uh, but uh, once again, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.